0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, this is Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg.com, Apple iTunes, and everywhere else. This is the second half of our interview with Bill Gross. By now, you should have listened to part one in which he described going into the folks at Pacific Life, quote-unquote, knees-knocking and proposing they set up a standalone bond shop. Uh, The early days at PIMCO, who his mentors were. That's a fascinating conversation. If you haven't heard it, I suggest you find that and listen to that. First, this half is really uh, the latter days, and he describes um, how PIMCO grew to be the monster it effectively became. He describes his Creation of portable alpha. I don't know if you knew that. That's essentially a Bill Gross invention. He describes why and how stability leads to instability, and we get to talk about uh, our mutual friend Paul McCulley, who brought Hyman Minsky to his attention. Who Minsky essentially is a person who explains why stability leads to instability. People become complacent. They become more more aggressive. They take more risks, and eventually. That that has a bad ending. And he talks about the Fed and QE and what it was like in the midst of the crisis, what it was like to when the Fed said they were going to go and buy mortgage backed securities. How come nobody else did? People didn't trust the Fed. They didn't believe it. He made a bet uh, that the Fed was telling the truth and it netted him $10 billion in returns uh, for the total return fund shareholders. So. He also says some very, very interesting things about his exit from Pimco. He still is is smarting from that. He feels blindsided. He was stunned. He didn't know that a founder slash CIO slash shareholder can be uh, unceremoniously f- dumped. He says he was fired from Pimco, and he thinks Pimco made a mistake. They should have let him. They should have accepted his offer. In Bill's words, to step down from total return, just run the closed end funds. And, and sort of sail off into the sunset a la Peter Lynch. But that didn't happen, and I think um, he feels he still has something to prove, and that's how he ended up at, at Janus Capital. So anyway, this is the second half. Um, it's another hour, and again, you'll find Gross to be very forthcoming, very intelligent, and very articulate. Uh, I, I found it to be a fascinating conversation, and I think you will also. With no further ado, here is Bill Gross. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. What is the state of the U.S. economy, and what do you think about what's happening in Europe and Japan?
0: Well, the entire world, let's start there, is suffering from a lack of aggregate demand, and that uh, that's almost so um, undefinable, I, I suppose. It, it, it takes a, a, a textbook as to be relatively useless, but it, it basically means that the uh, the world is suffering from high debt levels, which, um, which in the past have promoted lots of demand over the past 30 years and can do so no longer, uh, that the world is in the slow process of a demographic crawl towards older age. And we see that with Japan and Germany and certainly with the boomers in the United States, although our economy is less affected. Um, we see that with technology as uh, robots replace people, uh, you know, jobs from Apple and Google. God bless them. They're great companies, but they don't create a lot of jobs. They create gadgets and wonderful uh, th- you know, things to, uh, to, to communicate with. Um, so the, the world has changed from the standpoint of aggregate demand. There's less of it uh, because of debt demographics and technology. Other influences, and so um, you know, we are fighting what Summers calls structural uh, headwinds. Uh, We're fighting what I call the new normal. Uh, The the world, uh, you know, in the developed world, cannot grow the way it used to grow. It's probably a one to two percent growth rate. Um, You know, shouldn't if Europe ever, you know, get out of the hole, Uh, in emerging market countries, they've got uh, their own problems, commodity-based, commodity-related, and dependent upon uh, capital inflows, which now are uh, being pulled back. And so their growth rates, while underdeveloped and uh, having less debt uh, on their balance sheet than developed countries, have problems of their own that, uh, from a financial standpoint, limit their ability to grow. So that the, the, the globe yes, still grows. Uh, the IMF puts out forecasts of 3% plus, and a lot of that's China, but um, so it still grows, but it grows much more slowly. And, and so from the standpoint of uh, the US, what we're seeing now at uh, at 3% plus is uh, a little bit of a mirage. You know, I, I, I believe in the one to 2% uh, structural growth rate that we will, you know, uh, very quickly move back down towards. And uh, that's not all that bad relative to everybody else, but it, it's not what we're used to. And in terms of corporate profits and uh, and growth and um, and uh, P.E. ratios, uh, et cetera, et cetera, it, it's really a suggestion that, the, as I mentioned in my investment outlook last month, the, uh, the good times are over and uh, returns uh, this year, in my opinion, may uh, – in many cases have minus signs in front of them as opposed to positive signs.
1: So you don't think that 5% print in GDP is sustainable?
0: <laughs> oh god no. Um but but that's what they want. That, that that's what the Fed the Fed wants 5% nominal GDP. That's their target because if the economy can grow at 5%, it can continue to to pay off uh you know its its interest rate bills both publicly and privately. Um if if it only grows at 3% uh, or 3% and uh, 2% then uh, an economy like the United States, a levered economy like the United States, has a difficulty in terms of paying you know, for its past consumption, its past credit. Um, it's just that simple, and and um, you know we we shall see. Uh, you know, since since Lehman Brothers credit, private credit, the credit I mentioned in the first segment that had grown from one trillion to fifty eight trillion has grown about at a 3 to 4% clip some uh, in some sectors higher like with the government and their deficits uh, in some cases lower like with mortgages and in uh, private consumers but in any case it's been growing at 3 to 4% um, uh, the 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 economy needs credit to grow at 3 to 4%, 4% it needs nominal gdp to 5% on, or else um, uh, assets, um, in order to make the cover, to make the interest rate, um, they start to be sold. And that's the beginning of a debt deflation that all central banks want to prevent.
1: Want to avoid deflation. You mentioned mentioned aggregate demands. Leads me to a conversation I had with your colleague, Paul McCulley, who was defending what the Federal Reserve had done on the basis that Congress had abdicated their responsibility. We normally see following a financial crisis, big stimulus, a lasting stimulus, and a lot of hiring on the state and federal level. We didn't get this time, if anything. We saw contraction on the state and local level. And while we had a, I want to call it an $800 billion stimulus, half of it were temporary tax cuts. And and a big chunk of it was temporary extension of unemployment. So you were really left with like a two or a $300 billion stimulus. And he was talking about a two to $3 trillion stimulus. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Congress this cycle. Did they do what they should have done following the crisis? And did, I'm paraphrasing Paul, did the Fed really have no option? Was it, hey, we're the only game in town. If we don't do something, we're just going to spiral to really bad places.
0: Yeah. I, I'm with Paul there the, with the exception that they shouldn't have gone below 1% and, and that's the, the problem now. And I'm with uh, Krugman and Summers and uh, and Macaulay in, in terms of the need for fiscal uh, stimulation and the lack of it uh, as you just described. Uh, Described it. There's, there's no doubt that at these interest rates, uh, you know, the government could be financing a a multitude of uh, infrastructure uh, projects. And and we have the Republican view and the Democratic view in terms of the uh, the productivity of uh, of public investment but uh, you, you know let's face it there, there's lots of areas in terms of roads and um, other large projects that the government must do and, and has done rather efficiently in the past and so let's uh, let's borrow money cheaply at two uh, percent on a ten-year basis and use that money to uh, you know to, to create uh, Jobs and to, to repair, you know, obvious deficiencies in uh, you know our private uh, infrastructure and public infrastructure. So yeah, I, I I think we've fallen down from a fiscal standpoint. Did the monetary authorities have no other choice? Um, probably not. Uh, but with the uh, the exception of of going going to zero, I think they they could have stopped sooner
1: at one at one percent. You know, certain countries have looked at. And issued fifty-year bonds to finance their long-term debt. Is that something that makes sense for the United States now that rates are this low?
0: Yeah, I think so. And we're looking at it. I mean, they they put out feelers, and uh, uh, you know, they bring in uh, pr- private uh, companies like uh, like Pimco, and, uh, not Janus, at the moment, but uh, and ask them as to the you know, to the viability of a, of a 50 year bond and who would be a buyer and does it make sense? And it, yeah, certainly from the standpoint of uh, pension funds, which are terribly um, in many cases still underfunded and mismatched. Uh, yeah. 50 years may be a little long, but uh, you know, th- 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 their problems emanated from the fact that their liabilities were always much longer than their assets. And um and now they're, uh, in many cases they're terribly underfunded so sure a 50 year piece of paper would make sense from the buyer it would probably come at a um, at a yeah, let me take that back I'm not sure whether it would come at a premium to a to a thirty-year piece of paper because of the uh, convexity uh, inherent in it, but in any case, it would be
1: cheap and
0: three and a half, four percent,
1: something like that.
0: Probably less, you know, probably close. Less. Yeah, probably closer to the. Here's my year. money for half a
1: century. Give me two point seven five. Is that right?
0: Right, um, or three percent, and and so it'd be very cheap financing for a government and could be put to productive use.
1: So I want to get to a lot of the questions that people had asked on Twitter. But let's. I would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about that unpleasantness last year. So mm. let's. Let me fire a few questions about this, and I'm, uh, I'll ease into it. Um, and, and this is a question that actually came from Twitter, which was: "You're reputed to be a tough guy to work for. True or false?"
0: Um. You know, in some ways, but because a leader has to be exacting. I mean, this is a business of money, of dollars and cents, and mistakes can be very costly and, and if you don't have a, a, a leader looking out for mistakes and berating those that make uh, significant mistakes then what have you you've got a a, a loose company that ultimately um, is, is not doing a service to its clients so you know I was always a stickler in terms of details a stickler in terms of you know, holding meetings and communication and going over the strategy um, you know I, I thought that that was important I thought that was my duty to to, to clients to get it right Right. and so if they consider that to be a, an attitude I, I guess rightly so on, on the other hand I'm a, I'm a pretty quiet guy um, I, I, I liked to uh, to sort of sit there and look at my uh, Bloomberg screens and uh, and do trades and when it came to uh, 12 o'clock hour, we would have an investment committee for two and a half hours. So th- that would be my time to come together with the company. Uh, you know, I, 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 I viewed myself as, in, in many cases, a, a, a mouse as opposed to a lion. Um, and a mouse that uh, sometimes roared as opposed to uh, a lion that, uh, you know, was was constantly on the prowl. So.
1: Yeah, I I I tough but fair is that what you're sort of hinting at or
0: yeah, I I think so. I think a, I think a leader has to be tough if if you sit around a table and uh, you uh congenially um you know, look for a consensus uh, uh, type of uh type of outcome, you're in trouble. You can't um, manage money but You can't consensus. manage money that way. You, at some point, somebody has to step in and said, we are going in this direction. And, uh, and I, I viewed that as, as my job, and I think I did it well.
1: So Allianz bought PIMCO in 1999. <laughs> for, uh, I think it was about $5.9 billion. Am I getting those numbers more or less right? Okay. You hung around for another 15 years, which is very unusual in the world, certainly of technology. When when the founders are bought out, they tend to go on to the next thing. But you stayed at PIMCO and managed it for another 15 years. Uh, how did that happen? They pretty much left you free reign to do what you wanted.
0: They did, and, and it... Uh First of all, I, I gave them my promise, not for 15 years, but, uh, uh, you know, for a certain long period of time that I'd stick around. You know, at, at the time, I was only uh, 55. so. Um, and
1: you were the brand? You were the most recognizable guy?
0: Right. So I, I gave them a promise. I, I remember earlier, 10 years before, a Japanese company had come by and they'd been worried about what they called the black box. They didn't know what was in the box. And, you know, if, if Gross ever left, what was in the box? Um, and and so i i told Allianz uh, yeah that was it was good to go and for a, a a good number of years um and i you know i i fulfilled that that promise for them and and for myself uh you know I, I still want to manage money and so um uh you know it wasn't strange i wasn't motivated ever by money uh it's nice to have money it it's nice to have a nice home or two, uh, and, uh, have the, the privilege of not worrying about, uh, you know, where your next paycheck's coming, but, uh, it was never money that motivated me. It was always, um, it was always clients and, and the recognition from them that I was doing a good job. Uh, that's what I was always working for and still am.
1: So when, so, uh, full disclosure for those of you who are listening, Uh, I had written a column last year about the bonus structure at PIMCO, which you responded to by saying, thanks, now I got to get a bodyguard for you revealing all that. But you challenged the track record of, I had mentioned in the article that uh, the 2011 total return, return, never recovered, you challenged that and it turned out it did recover. The track record wasn't as people had said. But what struck me as quite fascinating was you directed me to look at the closed end funds you were managing. And the people at Morningstar could not stop gushing. You know, they said, well, Total Return has had a great track record. It's not in the top decile in the past couple of years. But these closed end funds were ranked one, two, three, four, and six. Five of the Five of the top six in the entire peer group, they were 99th percentile. It raises a question: Why not say, "Hey, you guys take over total return. It's too big for me. I'm happy to just run. Um, I'm happy to just run the closed end funds. Why not?"
0: Um. I guess you should have been my agent um, <laughs> uh, because, uh, Barry, truth be told, and you're looking for some truth here. Um, that's exactly what I did say. Um, I, I said if uh, for some reason you're dissatisfied with me from the standpoint of uh, personality or from the standpoint of business direction, if you think uh, you want to pursue a, a different uh, direction as opposed to uh, what I called uh, burgers and bonds, the plain vanilla uh, total return type of product, uh, then fine. Um, You know, I'll uh, I'll step down uh, from the executive committee, from the compensation committee, and just manage uh, the the closed-end funds. Uh, uh, You know, I... I love I love that area because it's an area where individuals can buy them, you know, for a $10 ticket uh, with uh, Schwab or whoever their broker is, and, uh, and you know, if they can find a good one, uh, like the ones you mentioned, uh, you know, they can profit enormously in, in the bond market. And so I said, hey, uh, I'd be willing to do that, but um, for some reason, uh, still unbeknownst to me, they uh, didn't think that was a good idea, and they uh, they did fire me, Barry.
1: Did Now, you technically quit before they fired you, but you knew it was coming. You said, I'm getting out before they formally— Did you not have an inkling this was coming? Did this blindside you? Well,
0: uh, you know, I'd, I'd have to say in the last uh, few weeks it, it blindsided me. I, I had no idea that— uh, an executive committee could fire a, a, a founder and the, uh, the titular leader of the, of the company. Um, I, I, I found out about two months later. I was visiting a, a neighbor who was sick, and he's eighty years old now, and he's a retired Air Force general. But uh, we had a nice discussion about uh, his situation. And then I was, as I was leaving, he said, "Bill," he said, "you should have come to see me six months ago." And I said, "Why is that, General?" And he said, "Because uh, uh, I could have told you the first rule of the military." And I said, "What's that?" And he said, "Watch your back."
1: Watch your lieutenants. Yeah, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of guys got fragged, right, back in the in the old days. Yeah. Um, so now you're now you're at Janus. You're running an unconstrained fund. Obviously, w- much different. Are you doing anything different, not from an asset management perspective? But from a business perspective, from an interacting with colleagues perspective, what sort of mark did PIMCO leave on you? Are you changing anything or is it- Hey, it's a different world. It's a reboot, and I'm going to do what I do best.
0: Well, the unconstrained is different. I was I was running unconstrained at Pimco, but unconstrained allows you to, uh, you know, to be long and to be short. I suppose uh, it's not a hedge fund. It's not highly levered, uh, but uh, you know, it does has flexibility, and it it's not duration or maturity focused like the total return product it is uh as you've just pointed out much smaller at two billion it does allow a a lot more flexibility it does permit uh you know the incorporation of uh, an idea that can't really be uh, traced by the street or or jumped in front of and so uh, for all those reasons it's it's it's, it's a much more manageable situation. It is smaller. Um, you know, Janice has a large operation in Denver. I use their uh, credit research uh, team. As a matter of fact, I'm going to recommend one of their uh, bond funds uh, at, at Barron's in just a few hours at the roundtable five-star fund so they've got you know excellent uh, credit research that I utilize um, they're not as uh, advanced in terms of uh, derivatives uh, and we'll bring that up to speed we've uh, we've got Myron Scholes, by the way uh, and uh, you know several other people that are really advanced in terms of the uh, obviously derivative uh, thinking and exposure. And so, you you know, the attempt is not to rebuild uh, PIMCO 2. I don't want to have 21 floors, uh, you know, right next to the PIMCO building, but but certainly to to build a structure that uh, adds value for clients. And, and that, that's the biggest concern Barry I, I got at the moment is that with returns so low and, you know, with, with fees, uh, doing what they're doing, uh, not coming down very much, maybe in the hedge fund world to some extent, but, um, you, you know, I, 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 worry about the plight of the investor and, and, uh, you know, if they can only earn three or 4% annually, um, i I think they need a good deal. Uh, uh, maybe not Roosevelt's New Deal, but they need a good deal. And you know, I hope to bring that to them uh, through Janice.
1: So, anything you've learned personally in terms of the business side, the interpersonal relations side, the watch your back—you mentioned. What do you take away from the the exit to to the new gig?
0: Yeah, I I think that. Although, no, I'm not going to be in a position. I I told Dick Weil who who's the CEO at uh, Janus, that, uh, you know, he's running the business. I, I don't want to be part of those committees. I just want to manage money. Um, it, and so that aspect is, is is out of the picture, and I'm not, I'm not sure there's uh, uh, too many people I've got to watch behind my back. I think Dick has my back in terms of a, a, a strong uh, wind behind me, and so, um, you know, a lot of confidence there. But, um, you know, I, I think that was my Big mistake at PIMCO is that I, I simply assumed that uh, uh, that uh, executives could not be so uh, stupid as to, to do what they did.
1: So let's, in the last few minutes we have, because I know you got to get to Barron's, we have to get you out of here in 10 minutes. Let me go to Twitter and fire some, well, this will be the rapid round part. I'll go to the favorite questions that had come up from Twitter. Here's one from George Tarakis. What are two or three interests or activities unrelated to investing that have influenced your approach to investing? We obviously talked uh, about <clears throat> about blackjack. What else?
0: Well, I think stamps did. Um, really? Uh, yeah. Uh, and and bonds influenced stamps. But uh, yeah, when I started collecting stamps, I, t- I took the uh, the the approach of each uh, precious stamp. Um, the, the valuable ones having a provenance, much like a a, a Monet painting um, or a Picasso, and I I them in time for you know the last century in terms of their sales prices and auction prices, much like uh, you know going back in terms of the Fed and looking at historic interest rates where they bottomed in World War Two, uh, caps and uh, and monetary policy and, and all of that, and so I I took a historic approach to. The stamps and track the, the progress of, of prices up and down during recessions and uh, recoveries, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, I think became a, a a real good buyer of stamps at the right price. The uh, problem with stamps is how do you know what a little piece of paper is worth? It's the same thing as a, with a Picasso. How do you know what a— what a um, you know a, a, a picture of uh, you know uh, Picasso's uh, blonde-haired girlfriend looks like. Uh, uh, what is it worth? Um, it's worth what you're willing to pay for it. But there is a there is a fundamental basis for it all, and it, and the basis is is uh, the the growth of GDP and the growth of a uh, growth of wealth over time. And so I, I applied that to stamps as well and did. Did pretty well
1: you were, you were on cbs sunday morning you have one of the only one of the few complete collections of u.s stamps uh u.s american stamps uh, around is that is that accurate
0: the the only one ever ever created, assembled ever assembled
1: so here's a question from jim Arnold in two parts what are your thoughts of the impact of china on the future of money management and do you need an intern <laughs> yeah, I think he's volunteered. <laughs> so, so China and the impact of money management.
0: Well, I I, I think significant in in terms of uh, uh, you know China's growth and uh, uh, China's uh, uh, currency position, whether they want the uh, the RemB to to appreciate or to gradually depreciate, like it has in the last uh, three, four, or five weeks, and what they intend to do ultimately, with all of their treasuries. Um, you know, it used to be the, uh, a sense, of the the bond vigilantes, the PIMCOs of the world were the vigilantes. The, the real vigilantes these days are uh, China and Japan uh, and uh, Russia in a small way. They 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 can move markets. And, and so, yeah, the impact of China going forward, uh, not just in terms of what they hold in terms of their reserves, but their uh, the, the monetary um, uh, organization that they're trying to create as a uh, counter-influence to the IMF, uh, you know, t- trying to combine uh, Brazil and South American countries and other Asian countries as a counterbalance and a counterweight, um, you know, all that will be uh, significantly important in terms of the balance of the world and, and who controls uh, the gold, so to speak.
1: Here's an interesting question from Charles Biello. Uh, in in the era of negative interest rates and QE, do the textbooks on bond math and net present value need to be rewritten? No,
0: um, I don't. I don't think so. It it is fascinating and stunning to to see negative interest rates. Something that two years ago I would theoretically. St- have said couldn't happen but uh you know the fact is at the moment in europe uh investors are willing to pay the government to hold their money um i, I suppose that's the same concept as uh putting precious uh, stones in a vault uh and paying a price in order to do that but uh, yeah uh it it i don't think you have to to overrule uh, Macaulay and uh, dur- durational uh, considerations, that you know the mathematics will always hold. Uh, the question is, how far below zero uh, could we practically go? And I, I don't think we can go practically much below zero before the the mattress, as opposed to uh, the euro or or even the dollar, you know, become a dominant consideration. Ultimately, you can you can just put your money in a mattress and not pay a fee.
1: In the last two minutes. Three quick questions. One comes from Kurt Marco. What do you contribute your success to? What's the most important attribute or experience for that success?
0: Oh, I I, I think it's, you know, putting the focus on, on the client uh, as opposed to, um, you know, the company or uh, on yourself personally, if, if you always focus in terms of what they require, uh, the, the risk that you're taking for them, the fact that, uh, you know, the protection of their principal is, is the critical uh, element in, in terms of what you're doing and, and knowing that, uh, you know, ultimately the, the investor's success is your success. I, I think that's that's the the critical
1: focus. So last question, given your age and your accomplishments, why not just kick back and retire? Why? Keep working and working so hard.
0: Well, I could have done that, but I, you know, I th- thought about it in terms of a, you know, a game of basketball where you're shooting hoops for your own uh, pleasure, and they go in or they don't go in, and. Uh, it's fun, but but it's it's much more fun to play a game of horse with uh, somebody else. Uh, They got an H, you got an O, they got an R, you got an S. You know, it's a a game of uh, competition as opposed to simply playing a game. And I I could have played the game, but I want to beat the pants off of uh, uh, (laughs) the competition like I uh, have for the past 30 or 35 years. I want to prove that it... 70 that I haven't lost my touch and that P- PIMCO was wrong and uh, letting me go. And so for all those reasons, I'm here and expect to be around for a while.
1: Bill, thank you so much for spending so much time with us. This has been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate um, you s- sitting with us for two hours. We've been speaking to Bill Gross, uh, who runs the Unconstrained Funds at Janus, formerly of PIMCO. Thank you so much for coming in.
0: Thank you, Barry. Boy, it's been a short two hours. Yeah, for sure. You're listening to Masters
1: in Business with Barry Ritholz on Bloomberg Radio.